Welcome into another edition of New Track Record. Caleb Hatch with you and Justin Kinney joining us this week from a remote, much warmer locale. Hello, Justin. Hello, Caleb. Yes, live for at least uh, recording from Pensacola Beach, Florida. It is spring break week. Uh, have the wife, have the son, have my son's friend with us. We've done this for now the, uh, the third straight year. So we're, uh, we're living life here, uh, down here in the panhandle of Florida, but staying up to date on all things IndyCar and auto racing. That's right. And uh, a big weekend of IndyCar and racing coming up this weekend. Now, when you went in 2020 to Pensacola Beach, before we get to, to IndyCar and all that, you know, the topic at hand, uh, you went in the summer, correct, in 2020? Right, correct. So this okay. is our second year of going for uh, for spring break, yes. Because I stupidly went to Florida for my spring break, you know, in mid-March in 2020 because everything <laughs> shut down and my trip was booked and uh, we went. It was a family trip. Thankfully, everyone stayed safe. <laughs> <laughs> now remind me, uh, were you you had tickets to the infamous Saint? I did race. Correct. Not only that race, yeah. but going to go to the NCAA tournament in it was either in oh. Tampa or Saint Saint Pete later that week. So go to like I think it was first round games. Oh man! So you yeah. guys had to actually talk to each other all week. That's yeah, brutal. exactly. <laughs> we we missed out on uh, the big events and just got to hang by the beach in the pool, which I'm a pool guy. Are you a pool guy or a beach guy? You know, wife and I were talking about it because we were at a uh, bar today and we were kind of overlooking the beach and people just laying out. And I'm like, do people do this like all day? And she's like, yeah, you know, you come down and you, you know, you grease up and you lay down and you occasionally get the water and you just do this all day. Like I don't understand it because I I burned like we've we've been to the beach twice so far both days I've burned, uh, so I'm kind of like really do people actually do this? So I would say we're beach people, but my body is not a uh, a beach body uh, by any means in 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 several different. <laughs> yeah, I am a I like having the beach to look out on and to walk along, but I'd rather lay out by the pool. Because you can just yeah, jump in the absolutely. pool and then get back out, and there's no sand. I I just I can't deal with the sand. Yeah, like when you're sweaty. For us. Yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of the big thing for us because we always get a rental car when we come down here, and it's like you know how much sand in the rental is too much sand when we return this thing, and uh, that's always the battle that I'm battling. And uh, lucky for us, you know, we're at a condo here at Pensacola Beach, probably a half block away from uh, the beach on the Gulf side. So we don't have to get in the car very much to go to the beach. So that helps. But, yeah, sand gets everywhere. I mean, you're, you're, we're finding sand, you know, a month after our trip back at home. So basically, if you're listening to this and you're still listening, one, thank you. Two, we want to know, are you a pool person or a beach person? I, I think it's a fascinating discussion. Yeah, let us know. And, and we're in a great location here. We have a we have a pool. We have the beach on the Gulf side, and we also have a, a small beach on the Bay side here at Pensacola Beach. So pick your poison here. You can go all three here. Wow, surrounded by the beach, and that will be IndyCar this week. What what a segue! You just you teed it up for me. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, I I I mentioned to you earlier this week. You know. 
you know, trying to lay the groundwork for the uh, the Pensacola Grand Prix here. I know we got the St. Pete Grand Prix, but, uh, you know, that seems to be the hot seller across all series right now, whether it's Miami, whether it's Vegas, whether, whether it's Nashville, whether it's, uh, it's Cup with their pipe dream of Chicago. You know, that seems to be the uh, sexy sell right now across auto racing. And IndyCar has had one of the longest running street races with Long Beach and the guy who won last year in dominating fashion in the news with a very fascinating read by Nathan Brown of the Indy Star, how Colton Herta became a budding international racing star in America's Formula One. Hope, so much in this, and to sum it up, this close to being an F1. It's crazy how all the cards were lined up for Herta to be racing an F1 this season and how close everything was. The details in this article, which if you have not read it, check it out at IndyStar.com. It is worth the subscription. Trust me, it's a great read. And just you can run through so many different things on how close he was to that Formula One ride for this season, which is crazy because now they're talking about maybe 2024 is the next opportunity. But last year's season finale at Long Beach, Colton Herta was so certain it'd be his IndyCar finale, he hired a film crew to record his highlight reel as a personal keepsake. And then he was not 100% sure that the F1 deal would come through, but about 99% contracts hadn't been sent over. And then he spent a week at Alfa Romeo's shop where he was faster than than drivers Antonio Giovinazzi and Kimi Raikkonen on the sim. Then, of course, we covered the paparazzi sightings of Michael Andretti in Switzerland. And then a lot of stuff at the last minute. Uh, Herta said to Indy Star in an exclusive interview last week in Indianapolis, the four weeks between Long Beach and F1's U.S. Grand Prix in late October were just simply wild. So it, it starts out where he had multiple international phone calls, plane tickets booked to the rounds in Texas and Mexico City, in Sao Paulo. Uh, he also had a trip to Italy that was set to happen. Um, it, it's crazy how close this was to happening and yet how far it was. So you, you go through the timeline um, on kind of how things worked out with Herda. So he was asked about a potential run in F1 at Portland in mid-September last year. And he said, yeah, it's interesting to me, but I've got two years on my IndyCar contract, so I'm not really worried about it. But now, he says, Michael Andretti pulled him aside that weekend, told him we're really close on this. And then negotiations were so far that, again, he had an F1 racing seat molded for him at the shop. Again, mentioned running the sim quicker than both drivers. Then he had plane tickets for awesome Mexico City and Sao Paulo, Brazil. He was going to run an FP1 at each race to earn three more super license points. Would have left him five short of the 40 that he needed from the FIA to race an F1. However, there was a workaround. The workaround is that Herta would have had to drive an F1 car for 300 kilometers in a private test. So what happened? Mario Andretti got on the phone with Ferrari, got the ball rolling for Herta to run at Fiorano in Italy for a private, uh, that's Ferrari's private track for the team. Herta says he touched down in L.A. around 5 p.m. in the U.S. that day with a flight back across the Atlantic the following morning. That flight 
never happened. He never boarded the flight to Italy. The deal fell through, all because Sauber wanted Andretti to purchase an 80% stake in the team, but not hold the ultimate decision-making role. And then, obviously, we know Alfa Romeo went with the Chinese driver Zhu Guanyu. I believe that's how you say it. He came with a lot of money. And so everything was off the table. However, the deal to get that F1 kind of testing role with McLaren, that came up a few months later, and that came before Mario Andretti's tweet that got everyone on notice that Michael had applied for an F1 team. Zach Brown called the Hurtas. He had a testing role at McLaren. And basically it comes down to if Daniel Ricciardo, who's under contract through 2023, kind of fails to challenge Lando Norris, who Herta was teammates with, and I believe F3 in Europe, um, Herta could have his chance with Norris in 2024. And then the final update on the story, Andretti still waiting word on approval from the FIA for their F1 team, and uh, time is of the essence, essentially. So much to unpack there, Justin. Such a great read, so many great details that we didn't know before on how close Herta was to going to Formula One, and now it seems like there's still a kind of a backup plan in place, right, with this McLaren testing role. Well, you know, first off, props to Nathan Brown for putting all this together because this is a lot of stuff to die, you know, dive into. And we talked about, uh, you know, paywalls and paying for for content. This story alone is worth the cost of admission, basically for Nathan Brown and Indy Star, you know, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, it's fascinating to see just how close that Colton Herta was, but it also it's very Formula One, right? Yeah. China comes out of nowhere, and it is basically buys that seat, right? And not to take anything away from that driver, but, you know, money talks. And in the end... It was the guy with money over the guy with talent, potentially, right? So uh, very Formula One, and, and you know, we, we talk about um, Andretti Global and if FIA is going to sign off on them. Look, I was texting you earlier today, like, FIA has already come out and said, basically, we're happy with 10. And that, to me, says that's a, you know, a no to Andretti Global, but here we are with, with Racer.com coming out with an article that Michael Andretti's still waiting for a response. To me and you, it sounded like FIA was saying no. Yeah, they you know, they kind of said that, what, a couple weeks ago? Yeah, and, and you know, I, I know it's not an official no. It was kind of through, you know, media channels and all that, but basically it was saying, hey, we're happy with 10. And, you know, then we hear, okay, Sauber wanted Andretti to buy into a majority stake, and that's how they were getting Colton Herta in, it, it, you know. Like I said, it's very Formula One. Everything, everything in Formula One is based on money. Everything. And, you know, we, we, we talk about Andretti Global and just how willing they are to get into Formula One. They got hundreds of millions of dollars. That's great. But I still think the path is through buying into an existing team. And whether that's Colton Herta, whether that's Andretti Global, and and all that, I still think it is you have to buy your way into Formula One. And that's why I look at Pato Award and his path to Formula One, and even Colton Hurtas, 
and saying the easiest way to get into Formula One right now is through McLaren. And similar to what Nathan Brown said in his article and Colton Horta, that really is through Daniel Ricciardo at this point. And that seat, and whether it takes uh, you know a couple years or what to get in there, you know that could be the opening because otherwise it's very difficult to see the FIA wanting to expand above 10 teams. And it's very difficult right now to see Andretti Global wanting to buy into a team at this point uh, to, to really throw the majority of their capital in to be a partnership as opposed to being on their own. And the interesting part is, you have the FIA, like you said, who does not want to expand, whereas you have Liberty Media, uh, Liberty Media based, you know, in the U.S., they want to expand not just the U.S. market, but they want an American driver for these now three Grands Prix coming in the U.S. starting next year. They'll have two this year, Miami coming up here in about a month, and then obviously Coda uh, later in the season in the fall. But those two two organizations are at odds with one another. Liberty Media, who is probably trying to, to help behind the scenes, I would think, to, to get at least an American driver, whether it's heard up, but I would think they'd also be in contact with Michael Andretti and trying to find a way to get this to happen. For the FIA, they have no incentive to add another team, right? Because the team's already there. They don't want to lessen the pot of money. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. Absolutely. I mean, that we, we've talked about it before, Caleb. That pie is is cut into 10 pieces, and the teams do not want to cut that pie into 11 pieces because that means uh, a lesser share for each of them. So do we see Liberty Media try to instill itself into the series and usurp the FIA or some sort of uh, arrangement to put an 11th team in there, to put an American driver in there. Uh, I'm really not sure at this point, but um, I feel like the FIA has spoken and they've said we're sticking to 10. And so I think the only avenue right now is buying into a team or as we've read in Nathan Brown's article, really trying to find Colton Herta a spot within an existing team. And I think it brings up, a, a great talking point is what happened to Pato Award because months ago we were talking about Pato Award having the uh, you know the, the fastest track to Formula One through McLaren. Yet all of a sudden it seems like um, it seems like Colton Herta has usurped Pato Award in a lot of different ways. And Pato Award's the one who actually had the F1 test last season at Abu Dhabi. Yeah, you could argue like you know. It's interesting because you could say, while Pato Award has had the more experience in Formula One, Colton Herta has had more success in IndyCar. And, I, you know, does this thing come down to FIA points? Does it come down to entry points? Does it come down to qualifying points? Because, as we know, IndyCar really doesn't feed into the FIA in terms of, of getting those driver points. So Herta with a third place in 2020. Um, what was he fourth last year, if I'm not mistaken, in, in the point standings? Um, he's going to need another top finish this year for more points. And you know the the 
points, the super license points, those can be obtained. They can find a way to work that out and, yeah. and figure it out. That's that's not the issue. I heard it actually fifth in 2021. But they can work out the super license points. It's more about can they get the, the contracts done? You know, look, let's be honest. If there were a driver in IndyCar who brought an insane amount of money, they could buy an F1 seat. There, there's just simply not that driver, though, in IndyCar. And, again, why would they be in IndyCar when they could just go to F1 if they have that kind of budget? Yeah, I mean, for better or for worse, look, you could look at Colton Herta's lineage, and it's Brian Herta, and, you know, he's not – yeah, he's well off, but he's not – Losing money. I mean, he's not buying his son a seat into Formula One. And you he's know, not Lawrence Stroll. No, he's not. It's not Lawrence Stroll. He's not Nikita Mazepin's dad. I mean, you know, this is the thing. I mean, you look at Formula One, and despite the growing popularity of Formula One, you still need a hell of a lot of money to buy yourself a seat in Formula One. I mean, there are still, you know, you know, very few instances. Um, where you're getting into that series without a lot of money. And unfortunately, at this point, you know, it's almost a curse for Colton Herta. As Formula One grows in popularity, it's going to have more and more entities that are trying to buy themselves into a driver's spot. And you could say that's been a detriment to Colton Herta trying to get a seat uh, among 20 in Formula One. And so, you know, at the, at this point, you know, talking 2022, there's no spot for him. And, you know, barring something crazy and, you know, not saying it's out of the question, for 2023, you have a hard time selling anything. But, you know, 23 races can change a lot of things in Formula One. So uh, I, I would say, you know, there are opportunities, there will be opportunities out there for Colton Herta for 2023. How they look, what they look like, I have no idea. I want to read this passage in the story by Brown because it's something I didn't think much of at the time, but he kind of ties some things together. I think is it's just an excellent point. We talk all the time, you know, in just in business and your job, you know, about how important networking is, right? Well, this is an example yeah. of networking that I think not only will help Colton Herta now, but will help him in the future. So here we go. When Herta returned to Europe in February as a sub for an injured Travis Pastrana in the race of champions, an international who's who field that gathers two high-profile drivers from countries across the world to compete outside their traditional disciplines, he said the Mika Hockenins, Sebastian Vettels, and David Coulthards of Racing Royalty now know who Colton Herta is. More than five years ago, when he was preparing to leave European racing behind, he'd asked himself when the last time someone had gone from IndyCar to F1. The answers, Sebastian Bourdais, Juan Pablo Montoya, and Jacques Villeneuve. That doesn't happen for Americans, he realized. You know, I don't think anything about those events because it's like, oh, it's cool to be invited. And you get to race with guys, you know, who you probably looked up to, like for Herta, I'm sure he looked up to some of those guys. But you don't think anything of it beyond that besides it's a cool trip, it's probably paid for, and you get to drive a cool race car. Outside of that, whatever. You know, it's a it's a cool thing to do in the off season. But the name recognition, that's something you don't think about when you're when you're an IndyCar driver globally, because IndyCar is mostly a North American based series. But for him to go over there, he had a lot of success in that. 
think they're racing on snow, if I'm not mistaken. And for those guys to notice, they have connections. They can say, hey, that Herta kid's pretty good if you're looking for a driver. That's the kind of stuff that sets you up long-term in the future. Absolutely. And we look at some of these drivers that do different disciplines and say, you know, oh, they're doing it for the love of driving. And, and in a lot of instances, that's the case. We talk about Alexander Rossi. We talk about Kyle Larson, guys that really just like to be in the seat in various series. But it's also very much a networking thing, like you mentioned, is, you know, you're introduced to driver A, B, C, who, you know, depending on how you drive, you know, positively or negatively, those drivers are going to talk about you or they're going to go back to their teams in a bigger series and say, man, you know, you know, that driver was pretty good. Or if it comes up a conversation and, you know, somebody, asks, you know, what did you think of this driver? You say, well, you know, I saw him, you know, a year and a half ago at this event and uh, we competed good kid, you know, those, that matters. And it matters in business too. And, you know, you and I in particular, like, you know, you're introduced to people and, and, and you're good to people, you're nice to people, and, and that pays off, right? So uh, it's it's just the same as in as in business, as in your career, your networking, you're talking to people, you get to know people, relationships that you build that you may never think in a million years could pay off for you down the road end up paying off. And I feel like that's a thing that, uh, that uh, race car drivers – really count on is I'm not going to get a shot at this series or this opportunity on my own. I need somebody else reputable to be backing me up and participating in some of these events I feel can really open doors down the road. I'm really excited for you to have a networking opportunity with Tony Kanaan. <laughs> you know, we still need to tap into that in the month of May. You know, either he's going to put me in a headlock or he's going to Invite us into the garage. I'm not sure which. <laughs> so with all that said with Herda, I mean, it's a great read. We learned so much about the process, about how close everything was for Herda being an F1 in 2022. Now you look forward to the next couple of years. Obviously, 2023 seems more like a long shot because it would have to be outside that McLaren connection. But 2024 seems like a possibility. Do we still expect Colton Herta? to be racing outside of IndyCar and in Formula One within the next two to three years? You know, we entered this season, 2022, as thinking there was a potential that this could be the last season for Colton Herta and Pato Award in IndyCar. I still feel like that's a possibility, potentially, but I really look at 2024 as being that season where one, if not both, are gone and whether that's Andretti Global somehow buying themselves into the pie that is Formula One uh, or Colton Herta finding another opportunity with the team through a majority buy-in by Andretti and you mentioned Sauber and their you know interest previously in Andretti doing just that or the pipeline that is McLaren. And I feel like that's, you know, maybe something that's maybe the most likely at this point. The fact that Colton Herta has usurped in a way Pato Award in the hierarchy of McLaren and their potential next drivers in Formula One, I think is 
a storyline that's not getting enough, uh, you know, play because, you know, months ago we were talking about Pato Ward eventually moving up to McLaren F1. And now the lot of the talk is around Colton Herta doing that. So why? And um, maybe that is a, you know, kind of, uh, you know, backfire type, you know, emotions from Pato Award and how we've heard him say, my future is kind of questionable at this point. So not just Colton Herta, not just Andretti Autosport, you know, there's a lot of different uh, threads to this storyline. I think we'll know a lot about the situation for everyone after the month of May, you know, because I, I think well, I've had an opportunity to see Herta. I mean, look, let's be honest. He's one of the favorites for this weekend at Long Beach. Pato Award, what can he do, you know, the next several races if he can get a season on track? And then also, I think the other thing up in the air, Daniel Ricardo. Obviously, Lando Norris is locked into McLaren long term. But Ricardo, that's more of a question mark. And yes, I get he's under contract, but as always, contracts in racing can be broken pretty easily. And if his performance suffers a lot this year and he's not off to a solid start it kind of makes you wonder if they can make a move you know ahead of 2023 and maybe make the move sooner rather than later well and you look at Haas through the first two races of the season or uh, excuse me McLaren and the it hasn't been there the results have not been there so it's easier to make a move personnel wise driver wise when you uh, underperform in terms of expectations. And at least through two races, it's easy to say that McLaren has underperformed in their expectations. Can they get better over the next few races and kind of point that trajectory up? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, last year at this time, we were talking about McLaren being arguably the third best team in Formula One. Now you have to talk about what? Seventh, eighth at this point through two races? So, um, potentially changes coming in a lot of ways for McLaren based on their performance through the first two races of the Formula One season. All right, let's talk about the other big story of the week that everyone seems to be freaking out about, the 33rd entry for this year's Indianapolis 500. Another update. Say, Caleb, that yes. there will be 33 cars, okay? Yes. Let's preface everything by saying that. There will be 33 could there be 34? Maybe, but there will be 33. Let's stop worrying about it. There's still time. We could see something announced as soon as this weekend at Long Beach. Would not shock me at all. Um, that's a typical normal time to an, uh, announce an Indy 500 ride, you know, about a month and change out. And if worst comes to worst, I still think that Roger Penske will do whatever it takes to make sure the field is full so it's not a story. Yeah, I mean, if nobody else is in, if – Penske does not step up and financially assist another team. Team Penske will have a fourth car in the 500 to complete the 33 at the very, very worst. And, and so all this talk, I don't know how much talk is out there because I'm in Florida and I'm not paying much attention, but in terms of, of people saying, well, there's only going to be 32, there'll, there'll be 33 starters. Will there be any bumping at this point? I'd say unlikely. Yeah, I would agree with the the bumping part. But, yes, a, a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of insane 
Twitter takes, look, they will get to 33. I think that will happen. Let's stop worrying about it. They'll figure it out. Look, if they could figure out 33 for the pandemic and 33 every year during the, the lean years of the IRL in the early early 2000s, you know, during the split era, they can figure out 33 this year. So Marshall Pruitt, racer.com, options narrowing for the 33rd Indy 500 entry. Pruitt says two potential entrants tell Racer they're out of the running to take part in the month of May Speedway activities. Uh, there are meetings at Texas Motor Speedway with multiple teams. Also, more meetings expected to be held this weekend in Long Beach. One of the issues, AJ Foyt Racing, Dale Coyne Racing, and Hunkos Hollinger Racing said to be among the teams that have been approached, but one consistent comment from full-time teams about their disinterest in taking on another entry has been the lack of experienced crew to run the car. So it's not about the engines. It's not about the chassis, with the exception of Top Gun, obviously. It's not about the drivers. It's about the lack of crew. So here are the updates. Racers learned two-time Indy 500 starter Catherine Legg will not be on the entry list after a considerable amount of support, including crew spinning IndyCar and IMSA and the use of Honda's 18th and final engine, came to naught after the opportunity to lease a Honda-ready chassis fell through. So Catherine Legg out. That was a name that was mentioned on one of his previous updates. This one I did not see mentioned anywhere but uh, before this, but Pruitt says, a plan to run former Andretti Autosport driver Zach Veach, which had an engine lease from Chevy on deck, and a team willing to make a Delora DW12 available, has also confirmed its quest to be on the entry list met its end after a major backer withdrew. That's new information. You mean Group 1001 didn't step up to sponsor Zach Beach? <laughs> uh, no, no. The, 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 the sponsor he brought in. Um, you know, a lot to unpack here. Uh, you know, and you and I have mentioned it before on previous podcasts is, look, you know, a lot of these uh, entries are contingent on getting a chassis, Right. And so many people want to point the blame at full-time teams and saying they're not willing to rent a chassis out to these indie-only teams, and they're the, to blame. But I, I really turn it around. I say, look, if you're serious about running the Indianapolis 500, then you, team, you need to front the money for a new chassis and buy one. And, and I really think that makes the, you very legitimate in the eyes of a potential engine partner, a potential team partner. And so I think we're seeing the dynamic change as we've seen, and I think it all goes back, Caleb, to the increased size of the full-time field. And it was, it's very much a give-and-take thing. Look, if you want more cars each and every week at Long Beach and Mid-Ohio and Iowa and Texas – and Road America, then you're going to have to give a little bit in the month of May. And I think that's what we're seeing. And we're seeing teams be a little bit more, uh, you know, territorial on their equipment and their staff and their their race cars. And, you know, we're seeing the fallout from that. And, you know, quite frankly, I'd rather have the 25, 26 cars every week than the multiple cars, you know, the 35, 36 in the month of May. That's me. I would agree. I, I mean, to me, a perfect scenario is you have 24, 25, 26, and 36-plus entries, but we don't live in that world. And I think, you know, as Marshall mentioned, 
Think about it. The crew guys, this is not a big industry. IndyCar is a small, you know, kind of close-knit, more like a family as an industry. And so the the guys who work for the different teams, you know, you may bounce around from team to team here or there, but they're kind of tapped out as far as the staffing with all these sudden additions after, you know, a very down year in, in 2020 and then uh, a year where people kind of got back on their feet in 2021. It's a quick turnaround and it's good, but also you have to have people in the industry and, you know, motorsports has had a resurgence since the pandemic began, which is great, but also you're not suddenly going to get that many more available employees in the pool out of nowhere. Yeah, and I think that's a great point because you could come in tomorrow with a million dollars and say, I'm buying a chassis and I'm going to grab an engine lease and we're going to qualify for the Indianapolis 500. But if you have no, if you have no crew, if you have no staff, if you don't have an engineer, I mean, you know, forget the driver at this point. You know, you can get a driver, but can you get everybody else to surround that driver and that team to be competitive? And and I feel like right now the answer is no in a lot of these instances. You know, I I half kid or you know I, I really wasn't kidding when I told you this is like a good Netflix series if we're talking talking about Drive to Survive would be do a whole saga on who the hell owns the chassis or the cars at Top Gun Racing. <laughs> I don't understand how difficult it is to determine that. And you said, you know, you told me simply whoever bought them should own them. And I said, well, yeah, that's obvious, but apparently it's not obvious enough to Top Gun Racing. Does the team own them or does R.C. Ederson's family own them at this point? So... Um, but all kidding aside, I mean, I really feel at this point you need to bring a full entry together. And you look at, uh, you know, unfortunately, Peretta Autosport at this point, you feel they have a car, they have a driver, uh, they seem to have an engine, but what's missing is a car at this point. And at this point, you say, you know, maybe you need to front the money for that car to be able to put this thing in the show. And I think we're going to get to 33 entries, but I would be absolutely shocked if we get anything more than that. And you know what? Like I've always said, if we get to 34, just start all 34 at this point. Yeah, you you mentioned Pareto Autosport. Marshall says the odds of seeing Pareto and Di Silvestro, as in Simone Di Silvestro, returning for their second Indy 500 together appear to be extremely long. Rumors of a post-500 program with a Swiss driver continue to build. And again, it's... They have the crew, they have the engine lease. Um, it's it's getting together a team willing to take them on. Meanwhile, Cusick Motorsports and Stefan Wilson, they're in the pole position as Marshall puts it. That's not really a surprise. But Marshall wraps this up uh, with a couple interesting tidbits. One, and I think we speculated on this a long time ago when when Hinch switched to his role uh, with NBC Sports, and that was announced. Chatter regarding IndyCar veteran James Hinchcliffe being in the frame to drive a third coin entry have circulated. Uh, the ambitious idea lacked full funding and did not make it out of the conceptual stages. Did, did we not <laughs> kind of discuss that before? Oh, sounds uh, very familiar to stuff we have talked about here on the podcast. Uh, I mean, to me, it made so much sense later uh, with that special uh, Honda lease. Yeah, you know, uh, absolutely. You felt like maybe he could work something out. I think there's just 
there's a lot of things floating out there that are missing key pieces, whether it's a chassis, whether it's an engine deal, whether it's a driver. And, you know, if, if one, two, or three of these teams kind of, uh, you know, put something together together, I think they could make something happen. But at this point, unfortunately, no. And, you know, I'll point this out is, you know, you talk about Simona DiSalvestro and Catherine Legg and how we, we, we returned last year to having a female in the field. And I almost feel like, at least personally, I've reached a point where I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but I'm saying it's almost to the point where I expect it or, you know, I, I'm used to a, a a field in which there are male and females. I, I almost, I think we've, in a certain way, outgrown the fact that we need a female. And I don't want to make it sound different. I, I want to make it sound like it should be expected at this point. The, the um, novelty is worn off. As far as it being a unique thing, it's more that, yes, of course, this should happen, and it should happen every year. Yeah, absolutely. And and the fact, like, once we reach a point where it's not a story is when we've really succeeded type thing. It's very much when you talk about women in a male-dominated field or, um, you know, a, a, a racial issue between, you know, a, a race, you know, you know, coming into a, a another race is dominated field, like, once we've reached that point where it's not a story is when we've really, really succeeded at this point. And maybe for better, for worse, for me is I don't find it a big deal that a female isn't in the race because I feel like we're in a sport that which every passing year we're seeing more and more and more diversity in this series whether it's somebody like Kara Adams in charge of Firestone Tires or engineers or people over the wall or involved in these, these, um, these teams, is I almost seem like when I'm walking through the paddock or walking through pit lane, seeing a female in a fire suit isn't a big deal to me. And, you know, I'm not by the, you know, with the series for 17 weekends and, and all that, I'm not going to say I am, but I almost feel like it's if it's going to happen, it happens. If not, it's not, because we have a hell of a lot of female representation in IndyCar now, and I'm almost looking at it like I'm not looking at it as a step back if we don't have Simone DiSilvestro or Catherine Legg in the field. To me, we have reached a point where if I see a female driver if I see a female engineer, if I see a female right rear tire changer, it's normal. And that's kind of where the place that I want to be. And I don't know if it's, if it's a, uh, an exception to everybody else, but that's kind of where, where I'm at right now. I think the issue I have is that last year with Preda Autosport and being a, a female-dominated team from the owner, the driver, the crew, you know, engineers, yeah. everything, I think the issue I have is that they're not able to put together a ride for that sort of effort. You know, I think female drivers, I mean, totally. they've, they've totally proven themselves at Indianapolis over the years. I think that should be the rule and not the exception. And we should have several every year. I don't, I don't, you know, the fact that it, it seems to be that getting sponsorship is tougher for them is it's always confused me a lot because to me, you have a unique story to sell that is different from, the other 
31, 32 starters in the race if you right. qualify. Um, but unfortunately, it that's that's the case. Yeah. yeah. It was the biggest story last year. And, you know, you look at Fred Autosport, by all means, they have a driver. They have a team. They have a sponsor. All their, They have an engine deal. All they're missing it is a car, right? Yeah. And, you know, you look at Pen, Team Penske, who let's, let's say conservatively sitting on five spare cars, five spare chassis. And if this is a, a, a monumental importance, like IndyCar made it sound like last year in their drive, you know, to change and, and all that, that they would give that team a chassis. But at this point, we got to say it was all talk at this point. Compared to what they did, you know, between what they did to Miles Rowe and what they're doing right now to Pareto Autosport, I have to say it was all for what? It was all for a quick headline and not long-term sustainability in giving opportunities to minorities and women. Because this year is proof of that. Miles Rowe is having to fight his way through the road to Indy, raising his own money. And here we are, Pareto Autosport, without a fully uh, full entry in the Indianapolis 500 in the month of May. And, and not due to a lack of talent, because Miles Rowe won a race, uh, race last year in USF 2000, and he's already won one this year in USF 2000. It's just the budgets, and clearly they need to provide more assistance. And I'm not just saying financial assistance, but provide more assistance and find ways to make sure that it's it's more of an imperative to have these these teams and situations on the grid because like you said it's one thing for it happened you know great the first year but in year two they made massive changes and kind of dropped support and it kind of leaves you wondering well how committed like you said are they to that program yeah i mean if we're to believe they're as committed to this program as what they made it out to sound last year then neither one of those entities we've talked about should have any problem uh, on track this year in terms of funding. Final note from the article uh, by Marshall Pruitt. Uh, as one driver recently said, at what point does Roger Penske wheel that fourth car out and fix the problem himself? Yeah, I think that's the ultimate question, right? I think that's you know the end game if we don't have anybody else step up. But at this point, if you're going to wheel that fourth car out eventually – why not wheel the fourth car out for Pareto Autosport at this point? All right, time to preview the Acura Grand Prix of Long Beach. 85 laps this weekend, the 47th edition. And we'll have practice uh, Friday, 6.15 to 7.15 Eastern. Peacock IndyCar Live for international streaming, Sirius XM IndyCar Radio. Then on Saturday, 11.45 a.m. to 12.45 p.m. Eastern, practice two on all the same platforms, qualifying 3 to 4.30, Saturday afternoon Eastern time. Again, same platforms, Peacock for the live coverage in the U.S. Warm-up on Sunday, 12 to 12.30 on Peacock, again Eastern. And then the race window on Sunday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time, NBC, Peacock, IndyCar Live, Sirius XM, IndyCar Radio as well. And then they'll have the post-race show again from 6 to 6.15 Eastern on Peacock and then also internationally IndyCar Live as well. So you look at this weekend, obviously Andretti Autosport, Team Penske going to be two of the top teams for this event. 
Colton Herta, your defending race winner. Alexander Rossi won in 2018 and 2019. Who is your pick for this weekend? Ooh. Um, I'm going to go Scott Dixon. It's a good pick. <laughs> I mean, um, man, I could go with a former winner. I'd go with Herta. I'm still steering clear of Alexander Rossi. He's burned me too many times in terms of betting and saying, well, he's got to win at some point. He's already won here before. But uh, I'm going to go Scott Dixon right now. I feel like we're at a point where he's going to want to instill his name into the conversation in terms of this championship, in which the points we're not going to talk about till the Indianapolis 500. But a win definitely would help him and uh, also maybe set the tone for the rest of the season. All right. Um, you know, I'm I'm going to stick with Andretti for kind of the, the – the dominance to continue, if you will. I'm tempted to pick Herta again. Uh, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to pick Herta again. <laughs> well, I mean, it would be a good bounce back for Andretti Autosport. Not, you know, in 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 the small term, um, you know, getting a win. But also when we look at the big term, when we talk about Colton Herta and everybody else, is, you know, it gets Herta back on track. You know, we talk about all this discussion about Formula One and otherwise. It reinstills Colton Herta's dominance in terms of IndyCar. And I, I really think in a way, the perverse way, that it also fuels the fire when we talk about Andretti Autosport and say it is Colton Herta and nobody else. Yeah, I, I think Grosjean has a chance, though, to have a really solid week, and I almost picked him. No, no, I, I agree. You know, Unfortunately, we're in a point where until Roman Grosjean wins, we're saying – He's, you know, maybe a, a, a candidate to win, but hasn't won yet. And we look at Alexander Rossi and say he's a candidate to win, but hasn't won in three years. And we look at, uh, you know, Devlin DeFrancesco and it says he hasn't won and really hasn't proven that he can be in that conversation either. So it's a lot of, yeah, but with the exception of Colton Herta with Andretti Autosport. A couple of notes for the race weekend. Um, at the Walk of Fame ceremony where they uh, honored Alex Zanardi to the uh, Long Beach uh, Walk of Fame. Jim McKaylin, who is the uh, promoter, extended deal with the city to host IndyCar through 2027, that courtesy of Jenna Fryer, the AP. Also a look at some of the uh, stats and notes uh, attendance-wise. Adam Stern of Sports Business Journal says they're looking at a pre-pandemic type of crowd this weekend. Uh, attendance... Over the three-day weekend in 2019 was 187,000. So it, they'll throw out 200,000 probably if if all is well. I'm guessing for the the attendance figure. Also, this note from Nathan Brown of the Indy Star talking about you know the last normal April Long Beach race, which was in 2019. Only five full-season IndyCar drivers were in their same rides roles as they hold this weekend this is wild rossi dixon ray hall new garden and power that's it pretty wild and then three key stats courtesy of chad 200 for long beach 37 of the 46 races won by drivers starting the first two rows last four at long beach qualifying results for elio first 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 and third and then andretti is one to continue no i do not okay 
Andretti has won last three races here, five of the last 11 with four different drivers. So that's a look at some of the notes. And then this courtesy of Trackside Online, a couple of things. Pole sitters driven to victory lane in 27%. The previous IndyCar races in Long Beach, that's 10 of them. Also, previous races averaged 2.8 cautions for 11.4 laps. Eight of the 13 races since IndyCar took over the sanction in 2008 had a caution in the first five laps, including the last four. So expect an early caution. And then it's been decided by less than one second eight times, including heard his win over Joseph Newgarden last September. Closest margin of victory in 2016 when Simon Pagano beat Scott Dixon by three-tenths of a second. So that is a look at some Long Beach stats and notes ahead of this weekend for you. And with that, if you like what you heard, if you agree or disagree with our takes on Colton Herta and F1 or have anything about the 33rd Indy 500 entry, we'd love to interact with you. You can find us at NewTrackRecordPodcast.com. While you're there, sign up for the email list so you never miss an episode and subscribe for free. Also, you can find us on social media platforms. Our Twitter handle is IndyCar Podcast. On Facebook, like us. Just search for New Track Record. And you can email us as well, Podcast at gmail.com. And follow us for free on your favorite podcasting platform, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Google Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, wherever you find your podcasts, you can follow us for free. Okay, Justin, mailbag time, and we have a... A solid amount of content to get to. Starting off last week, where we talked about Oil Pressure's uh, blog's column on if another oval will be built and, you know, the future of ovals in the series. Hunter J. Smith 03 said, The only track left out I can think of was Memphis International Raceway, which is a good one, but uh, Oil Pressure blog himself saying, I didn't mention it in my original article because Cart slash IndyCar never ran there. That's one I forgot about. And then, uh, it still no, it does not. Memphis? No. Okay. No, I, I totally forgot about that one. And then, uh, it was almost like a flash in the pan. It was there and it was gone. Then this from oil pressure blog himself said, nice job guys. Thank you. Glad you uh, listened and checked it out. It was a great topic and talking about ovals. It's, it's like one of those, what ovals, third OEM international races bumping. It's, <laughs> it works any time of year. Everybody wants them, but when it comes to, uh, you know, pay the bills, you know, where's the cash coming from? Precisely. All right, this from NCAPTEEN185. Justin, you mentioned a Cleveland street race if the airport is gone. Uh, Sir, have you ever driven through Cleveland streets aside from main downtown streets? We have potholes here that would swallow an IndyCar hole. At least we have (laughs) mid-Ohio. You know, as a, a driver that's uh, making his uh, treacherous ways through the uh, Fort Wayne streets in Indiana in early April, I can definitely relate to the potholes. But, uh, you know, maybe they would uh, solve that problem, you know, if it was in early, you know, mid-spring or early summer uh, in Cleveland, at least on the, on the track. Who knows? We can, we can hope at the very least. All right, posted a poll. What IndyCar topic slash complaint are you most tired of hearing about? 47% said no Netflix series, 23% more ovals, 18% third OEM, 12% other. Got a lot of replies on this one. 
and it starts off with Hunter's Way 67, got to be third OEM. I don't even read the articles on that subject anymore. <laughs> Sadly. Jeremy from HBG, commercials. Yeah, that's true because of the European fans or F1 fans getting into IndyCar or used to the oh. commercial-free broadcasts. God forbid IndyCar pay the bills. This from Big D Cart. I checked in at the Richmond NASCAR race for a few minutes, and the crowd looked spotty. The last IndyCar Richmond race was one of the least competitive American open-wheel racing events of all time. Think street and airport ovals, folks. Um, This from N.K. Harden. I don't love the Netflix thing because we're asking for IndyCar to do what everyone else is doing, but do any of us think it will be as good? I voted third OEM, though, because I'm tired of hearing about it. It's a big nothing burger until it isn't. We've been jerked along for so long. Well, I would think Jay Fry would probably say the same thing, that they've been jerked along for so long. And, you know, talking about, uh, you know, Drive to Survive and Netflix, we're finally seeing some pushback about that. And the drivers in particular are not happy in the way that things are being portrayed, in the way that they're being portrayed, in the way that potential drama is being, you know, developed in Drive to Survive, and we're seeing, you know, a little bit of uh, of revolution from the drivers. And, you know, I, I think maybe Drive to Survive got a little too big for its britches and said, you know, we can pretty much put anything out there and people are going to believe it. And I think you're seeing now teams, drivers in particular, kind of push back and say, you know, the things you're putting out there as, you know, relevant arguments or, you know, rivalries or issues in this sport are not reality. And I think, you know, going forward now, we just saw Drive to Survive Season 4 released. I think you're you're really going to see a an adjustment in, 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 in Season 5 and beyond if Drive to Survive is going to survive because a lot of drivers are unhappy. And it was picked up for a fifth season, so... Drive to survive will survive to drive another season. And, you know, you know, maybe it's just following around Williams and Alfa Romeo at this point. Like, you don't want to piss off Max Verstappen and, and, uh, and Ferrari and Mercedes at this point. This from Poet Shevchenko. At this point, no Netflix series because the time for maximum impact has passed. F1 fans are starting to sour on the series, I think. Yeah, that's what we just discussed. IndyCar having a robust social media and YouTube program would be far better, like four videos a week getting fifty to 70,000 views after 24 hours. I know that's really big on the younger fan base that's uh, younger than us, that they, the social media presence, YouTube, all of that uh, is an area where people wish things would improve. This is from Lisa Klitz, Jimmy Johnson. Okay, my apologies, Lisa. That's on me. <laughs> Uh, Jeremiah Morell says, tired of complaints about the DW12. Well, it's kind of old. I will say that. It is getting up there in age, now celebrating its 10th birthday. Jamin T14, pre-Indy 500 championship talk. Well played. Exactly. Absolutely. Who's leading the points? I don't even know. And it's <laughs> Mike Jarrett 33 says, IndyCar Media, get someone to take over and shake things up. Yeah, again, a lot of complaints about that and promotion. Uh, Daniel SEM 2004, how about we complain about the number of complainers? It feels like there are more complainers than actual fans, so let's go there. Uh, Yes. You know. And uh, I hope you're not referencing us as part of it. (laughs) (laughs) 
to play in a fair amount. But now, you know, I'm 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 big on two different things, Caleb. I am big on IndyCar and I'm big on Star Wars. And the fan bases are very very similar. They love to defend their property against anyone, whether it be IndyCar or Star Wars. But they're also very much complainers. They like to throw it out there about this, that, and the other, and what they like and don't like, and what they wish and what they what should be. And um, they're very, very, very similar, and a lot of crossover. And so I'm used to uh, to both fan bases. You know, it's some of the, it's it's very much like that. You know, your sibling rivalry. You know. You very much pick on your younger brother or younger sister, but by gosh, if anybody else does, then that's when you come to really fight. So I really see a lot of similarities between IndyCar fans and Star Wars fans. This from Human Spectre 1. we got a game coming out, and I think that's perfect, but a Netflix show I feel will just make it all more into a show. Just let F1 have the show. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, you know, you talked about, you know, who else has got a show? You're talking about uh, golf is getting a show. Tennis, Bubba Wallace. Show. And, you know, and we'll bring it up right now in terms of, of Marshall Pruitt mentioned this in the mailbag, is something that uh, that we've discussed in a potential format for an IndyCar show is talking about the month of May and – that's all it should be. It, your season, and let's say it was filming right now, Caleb. Let's talk about, you know, they were going to Pareto Autosport and they were going to Top Gun and they were, you know, really, um, you know, breaking down this this drama between Top Gun and, and R.C. Anderson's family and we're, we're talking about other teams. And this is where the series starts. And then you're taking it through May and you're taking it through the Grand Prix and you're taking it through qualifying, and you're taking it through the the, the race, and, and that's your series. That's your eight-part series, so to speak, and it premieres next year in March. And you, you, you do it one at a time for a week, and you go from March to May, and that's what takes you into the 500, and then you just recycle it. Because, you know, a lot of people won't say it is, you know, the majority of Formula One fans know what happens in Drive to Survive, right? It's not a surprise to anyone who watches it. It's last season, right? So you're, you're really capturing the casual fans. So you, me, all the people that are commenting on this, we're going to know what happens in this series if they do develop it. It's, it's all for that casual fan. And, and so – you know, that's kind of the, the direction, you know, and I talked to my brother earlier this week, you know, he was in Gulf Shores, I'm in Pensacola Beach, and he said, you know, my my friend, uh, a woman, you know, she really got into Formula One, and she's really talking about how she likes Max Verstappen, you know, my brother didn't even know what I was say his name, my brother knows, you know, he follows auto racing here and there, and he's like, she, she really likes Max Verstappen, she really hates Lewis Hamilton, and She's talking about how they were in Saudi Arabia and this happened. And also, like, this is a woman that two years ago would never have followed the series, right? Formula One. So, how does IndyCar capture that? And I really feel the only play you have, whether it works or not, is is the month of May or the months leading up to it. And you know, maybe 
the powers that be in IndyCar are are potentially listening because I really think that's the only way you can even attempt to match the drama that is Drive to Survive. Well, and as you mentioned, Marshall Pruitt uh, talked about that Drive to Survive kind of Indy 500 style program in the mailbag this week and Laser Disco saying, where have I heard this before? Well, you've heard it from us. It's the second time that's happened this episode. Now, we're not going to mention all the times we're wrong. But no, of course not. The times we're right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, only when we're right, like uh, true, you know, podcasters would do. Uh, continuing on. thousand here. <laughs> C. Clinkin says, tired of hearing about IndyCar's lack of quality social media and graphics. Anyone with eyes knows it sucks, but clearly it's not a priority to change. So let's just move on and support by watching races. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of people, you know, the, the complaints largely focused on social media and, and kind of that aspect. I think they're doing a better job than they've done before, though. And it's noticeable. I would agree. And I think, you know, going back to, um, you know, the mailbag, too, I think there were some, some good items in there with Marshall Pruitt is, you know, uh, you know, Marshall Pruitt mentioned, you know, out of all the good things that uh, Penske Properties are doing and Penske Corporation, you could say marketing and, and communications are not among those. And I think there are people that we know, that we know of, that are in those departments that are probably not the best people for those departments. I can say as a 39-year-old man, I would not be the best person for some of those jobs. And, um, and I think changes you know, need to be made to better incorporate strategies that, uh, that target the people that use social media predominantly. And uh, at least right now, we haven't seen the movement towards that out of, out of the Penske Corporation. This from N.K. Harden. On a scale of one to one, not a typo, how big of a deal is it that the 500 might only have 32 cars? Some fans want to let more than 33 race last year. Why does 32 matter? I think some nameless IndyCar YouTubers may have lost their minds this week. <laughs> well, uh, I feel like we've talked about it before, Caleb. There's going to be 33. There's going to be 33 starters. There may not be any more, but there won't be any less. Correct. And I guess I'm not worried about it, and, and we can move forward. All right, speaking of 33, who will be the 33rd entry? 46% still say Simona Di Silvestre on this poll. This is after that Racer article came out, by the way. 35% Stefan Wilson, 6% Catherine Legg, 13% Other. Uh, Arcole says, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it won't be Buddy Lazier. Uh, Vicky Lynn, 26, has to be Simona, right? I thought Stefan had already confirmed that they weren't going to be able to do it this year. Uh, from the article, it looks like it's the opposite. I, it's hard to follow what to believe because it seems to change week by week. JP underscore Orlowski, 27, says, I heard that the leg deal fell through. I personally voted for Stefan Wilson because if we get 33 cars, he already has the backing and sponsorship to make it happen. I also feel that out of those three, he's the most deserving. I, I mean, they're all deserving. Yeah, I would agree. I think that 46% for, uh, for Simone Di Silvestro, partly believing that and partly hoping for that. I think at the, if, if we look at that poll, the most popular of those, definitely Simona Di Silvestro and Preta Autosport. I hope it works out for him. Because it's the best story. This from Human Spectre 1. I know it won't happen. Would love to see Munoz come back for a 500 run. 
Preaching to the choir, buddy. Preaching to the choir. Absolutely. He's a guy that's sitting there with next to no money and all the talent in the world to come and put it at least in the top 10 at the 500. And then final one from the mailbag, and it's reference to an Auto Week article. I don't know if you saw this, Justin, but uh, the headline, Graham Ray Hall challenges IndyCar to consider taking on F1 on its own turf. And N.K. Harden saying, uh, Graham Ray Hall is spot on. F1 fans in Europe get to see one race a year in their country. They now have to get up in the middle of the night to watch all the U.S. races. IndyCar should step in and play in their playground, as Graham puts it. Well, I saw this story, and I also read the story, or at least the mailbag question with with Marsha Pruitt that that really made a point to say, look, basically Penske Corporation is running the IndyCar series on a very, very strict budget. This is not, you know, you and I mention all the time and, and, you know, half playfully and other people, oh, it's Roger Penske. He's got all the money in the world, right? But as a businessman, how he's gotten to his place that he is is not over committing capital to something or anything. And at this point, you look at IndyCar and they've been put on a budget to run this thing. And I think we can poke a lot of holes into what they're doing or not doing. So we talk about marketing. We talk about promotion. We talk about potential overseas races uh, in this respect. And I, I say that's just a, a colossal uh, expenditure that Penske Corporation right now isn't in position to finance. Because let's remember, they have not had a normal May. As owner no. of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And that's why I don't worry about it, because they haven't had a typical May for the budget to expand things. And I, to me, the pressure will be on after this season to start exploring stuff, not for next year as far as the schedule goes, but for 2024, because they'll have had a, a typical May. They have this new TV deal with NBC – They'll have run for a couple of years, and assuming that goes well, it could continue. And with having sponsors getting network visibility, you know, all but two or three races on the schedule, then to me that's where things really change, and you've really run out of excuses. Yeah, absolutely. I agree because, you know, with the, with the TV numbers that we all anticipate this year, we're able to maybe get greater sponsorship, right, because of those numbers. And you look at just the Indianapolis 500, and let's say 300,000 people, more or less, are going to show up on that Sunday, Memorial Day, Memorial Day weekend. And let's say average, what did you think, Caleb, 40 bucks uh, conservatively per ticket? Oh, a lot higher than that. I would put the average at, yeah, for the 500? Yeah, what would you say? Oh, I would say for the average, I'd put it at like seventy to eighty dollars a ticket. Forty dollars is the price of general admission. Seventy dollars. Let's go seventy dollars. That's twenty-one million dollars just in ticket revenue, and that's that's money that IndyCar and, and Penske Corporation has not had. And that's not including, you know full attendance for practice qualifying for even the gp for you know suites and hospitality i I mean it's it's an insane amount of money the single biggest money maker 
within the IndyCar series every year is ticket sales at the Indianapolis 500. I feel that's safe to say. And for the first two years in which Penske Corporation has owned this series and owned the track, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, they've not been able to tap into that. And let's not forget that they're still going to have, you know, not the full amount this year as far as the money because people carried over from 2020, for example. True. Yeah, but, you're, but you know, at the very least, you're getting close this year, right? After the month of May, and you're saying, okay, we had a somewhat, you know, quote-unquote, normal May. And I really think that could fuel initiatives to have Penske Corporation pump more money into marketing, pump more marketing and, or more money into promotions. Maybe take a chance or two. Here or there. Uh, you know, we're looking at Iowa, but Hy-Vee's really taking a lot of the monetary risk here at Iowa, right? So could we see um, the IndyCar Series and Roger Penske and Penske Corporation maybe take a couple risks? We're talking about, uh, you know, overseas races. Could they maybe open themselves up to that? But it's got to be a two-way street. Let's take Silverstone, for example. You know, Silverstone needs to be interested in IndyCar, Right. Uh, before that's even entertained. So what Graham Rahal says is, 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 is nice and all that, but are any tracks in Europe interested in hosting IndyCar? I no. don't know. Maybe there are. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, that's good to say and say, well, you know, maybe IndyCar should go to Spa. They should go to Monza. And they should go to Silverstone. You know, that's great to say, but if they don't want you, then that's stupid to say because there's, there's, there's nothing in there. But, you know, to go back to my original point, you know, with the money that we anticipate Penske Corporation clearing this May for the first time since they've owned the entity and owned the series, then maybe they'll be able to take a couple more risks financially going forward or finance some things that they would like to do going forward. And you talk about sponsorship and that's going to help and all that. So, I really think we're maybe in that final year of IndyCar really trying to find itself and get on solid footing with, with Penske Corporation. And then next year we'll see them really, really maybe take some, some, some jumps, some leaps to see what they can do here and there financially. And let's all hope that happens. That wraps up the mailbag and moving on to news and notes. You mentioned some stuff in Marshall Pruitt's racer.com mailbag. Marshall saying, the rumored drive to survive any 500, which would focus solely on the month of May, not the rest of the season. That's for 2023 or 2024. Marshall also I says, royalties. Yeah. That's yeah. My idea. <laughs> <laughs> you should have sold it. Um, I know. Marshall also says, I keep hearing any car scripted reality series is making more and more progress. Which, which means what? Like, Caleb, like explain the scripted reality series to me. I, I don't know. Okay, thank you. I really don't know. Uh, Milwaukee <laughs> sure, update. Like, the, the Drive to Survive series wasn't progressing, but the scripted series was. I, I really have no idea what that means. Milwaukee update. Marshall says, I didn't start the rumor, but I do hope there's a groundswell of interest that catches any car's attention. Roping Menard, as in John Menard, into Sport Milwaukee sounds like a perfect year two scenario if and when it's successful in year one. Yeah, John Menard seems like a guy that waits for something to be financially viable before he jumps into it. 
So maybe year two of Milwaukee if it's something. But I really look at Milwaukee right now as um, I'll believe it when I see it in terms of bucks in the seats. Agreed. Uh, Richmond, so Marshall got this via IndyCar. We talked about Richmond and you know the failure there. Uh, IndyCar said after a great Firestone test involving Scott Dixon and Joseph Newgarden, IndyCar was excited about a return to Richmond. Dennis Bickmeyer, who recently announced his departure, was a huge proponent. Ultimately, COVID took plans in a different direction. The series remains open to future discussions and opportunities to return. So I forgot about Dennis Bickmeyer getting a different job. Basically, I'd say Richmond, not happening. I would say, you know, the silver lining taking out of that is that, you know, while COVID probably put a, a, a clamp on that, coming out of COVID, if, if these tracks can make money, um, and let's be honest, predominantly through NASCAR and through Cup with their TV deal, is if they can make some more capital, then maybe they're more willing to take a risk. And, I, you know, I just said – you know, similar to Topensky Corporation, I could see some of these tracks saying, "Okay, we've 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 balanced the books. We're we're back in the black. We're looking comfortable out of COVID. Hey, let's take a shot at an IndyCar race. Let's see how it goes. And maybe that's a play from one or two ovals, as opposed to, hey man, we're in the middle of COVID. Who knows when this thing is going to end? We need to really keep things close to the chest. We're not going to take any financial risks. No." No IndyCar, no this, that, or the other. We're just going to play, you know, play the field as we do, and hopefully that landscape, post-COVID landscape, maybe opens some opportunities up for IndyCar and potentially could uh, mean some successful um, added oval events in the future. Speaking of added oval events, so the the very last tidbit, uh, Robin Miller, you know, they pull something from an old Robin Miller mailbag. This was in 2018 yeah. on Fontana. Michigan and Cleveland. Miller says Fontana only wants a race in October. That's not likely to happen. Cleveland needs a title sponsor. MIS has zero interest to my knowledge. Here's the thing that I've said all along. In the season at Fontana, early October, and have it, you know, start at, say, 4 p.m. Eastern, which is 1 Pacific, so that that way you're not competing against the early slate of the NFL. Ideally, yes, but can you guarantee people will show up? But then again, are people showing up at Laguna Seca? No. No, correct. So, pick your poison. Continuing on with news and notes, um, taking a look at some, some Indy 500 news. First off, Ed Carpenter Racing announced that uh, the Alzheimer Neuro Number 33, Chevrolet. That'll be the sponsor for Ed Carpenter. Also the sponsor for Renus VK this weekend at Long Beach. They will race toward making Alzheimer's just a memory. Uh, that is connected to the guy who also has Bitnile, the, the car for Connor Daly. So there's a connection there. That's the sponsor for Ed Carpenter the rest of the season. Taking a look at some other notes. Matt Kenseth, A.J. Foyt, among the new names on the ballot for the NASCAR Hall of Fame. So A.J. Foyt could get into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Also, talking about IMS legends, uh, the IMS Museum has a new exhibit, Roadsters to Records. It is now open as of last week. And also the Drive for Five logo for Elio Castroneves for May was unveiled by Meyer Shank Racing. Pretty cool-looking logo. 
and something that will create a lot of buzz, obviously, for sure, once we get to May. Easiest marketing promotion ever. Yeah, it it, it markets itself. Um, I didn't know this. NASCAR man underscore RR, a big racing account on Twitter. April 3rd, 1980, IndyCar's race at Talladega was canceled on this date. The 500-kilometer race set for August 24th was called off not for safety concerns, but because of a scheduled reorganization. I always thought it was due to safety concerns. Really? I didn't even know, to be honest, that IndyCar had ever even attempted to race at Talladega. Yeah, apparently it happened. I I knew that they had attempted to race there. I thought it was due to safety concerns, just because the speeds were so fast. Right. Which they were over... They were like well over 200 miles an hour, which is not a surprise, even in 1980. Yeah, and never, never letting up. I mean, that that foot is on the gas the entire way around. This note from Indy 44 discovered this article from WJOL. Positive future for Chicagoland Speedway. Sounds like there's an opportunity NASCAR could return. So that's fascinating. Fascinating read on Chicagoland Speedway and Julia outside Chicago. Steve Wittich uh, posted this. Uh, big automotive news from the two current IndyCar engine partners. GM and Honda will co-develop affordable EVs targeting the world's most popular vehicle segments. So they have a partnership for that. And then Robert Wickens was on this week's um, edition of uh, Dale Jr. Download, the podcast. Download, right? Yes. Yeah. So I need to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, still catching up with uh, with Lost Speed Wales with Dale Jr. Watched the, uh, gosh, it was the Okeechobee Raceway, North Carolina. It was uh, Richard Petty joined uh, the crew. And uh, very fascinating, as each and every one of those uh, those episodes are with the King and, uh, and Dale Jr., there at that raceway, very much a, a like a Martinsville like paperclip, but on steroids, long straightaways and really steep banked corners to where they didn't have uh, any railings on the top, and uh, at least on one turn they would fly into a swamp. Like it was, it was uh, <laughs> really incredible. So I'm hoping for a season three. I'm still in season one because I'm just that person that takes forever to get through stuff. But uh, love love the series and uh, and hope it continues with, with Dale Jr. and crew, Lost Speedways. I love the uh, Texas World Speedway episode that they did. Haven't gotten there yet. That's, that's season two. They do the, uh, what is it, the Jungle Speedway or something? It's in yes. Indiana in season Correct. one. Yeah. yeah, that I haven't watched yet. But uh, really love the concept and, and hope they, they visit more in terms of uh, open wheel tracks because... <laughs> Lord knows there's a lot of them that are defunct. <laughs> and uh, with that, don't forget, you know, if you have Peacock for our U.S.-based fans, you can obviously catch that show on Peacock. So free plug there. Okay, Justin, tweets of the week time, then time for our random split era driver of the week. First one from Michael Waltrip, NW55 on Twitter. I used to run marathons. Now my phone congratulates me for standing up. What happened? Hey, that's that's progress, my friend. That's getting older. <laughs> uh, Tony Kanaan replying to IndyCar and NBC, they tweeted, what's your favorite piece of IndyCar memorabilia that you own? 
And he said, well, dot, 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 Borg Warner Trophy. <laughs> well played. Doesn't hurt. Yes. And then Marshall Pruitt, in reply to some people talking about you know, getting to 33, he said, unless something falls through that shouldn't, we'll have 33. And yes, on the growing pains, there's some cool things in the works beyond the 500. Yeah, relax, people. We'll get to that 33, right? Yeah, focus on the positives. Okay, time for our random split era driver of the week. Well, something I wanted to bring up before we got to the split driver, and it was something that uh, Marsha Pruitt himself kind of brought up in the mailbag. And we talked so much about, you know, um, the, the expansion of the schedule and how we'd like to get to 20, right? And I think something that, uh, that was very fascinating that I think needs reinforced is with Marshall Pruitt bringing up, you know, with the current uh, economic climate, of IndyCar and where a lot of these teams are is adding any type of new locale, whether it be Australia or Cleveland or Michigan or Milwaukee, is very, very detrimental to the financial uh, bottom line of a lot of these teams. And, uh, you know, basically what Marshall Pruitt said in his mailbag is if this series tried to uh, add any more than 17, it would have a fair amount of its team owners revolt. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind. And when we look into the future, when we talk about the sponsorships coming out of 2022, and we, and we talk about the added eyes, and we talk about the added income out of the month of May, is this is what it's going to, right? This is where it's going to potentially add an 18th race in a new locale or a 19th race in a new locale and allow these teams still to stay in the black in terms of financials. And I think that's something we really need to hammer on because uh, it was a big thing. We, we love to throw out perspective new races, but at the same time we maybe gloss over the fact that these teams need to stay in the black and financially solvent. Yeah, you, you, you have to have the sponsorship to afford more races, and simply 17 is the max at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. It it sounds great, but you know we got we gotta we gotta uh, you know look out for our own. But uh, all right, ready for uh, for tweets of the week or for our random split air <laughs> of the week? Yes, yes, I am. Let me uh, bring it up here on my phone. We're going to go to the 2000 Indy Racing League, and of course, the Indy Racing Northern Light Series. Yes, after the that was after the. Uh, Pep Boys sponsorship. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, there's a lot of familiar names in here or not so familiar, but we're going to go to Nine House Motorsports, and we're going to go to Nicholas Johnson. Who? Nicholas Johnson out of Sweden. Sweden. And uh, was teammates with uh, one of your favorite drivers, as uh, I need to find him. Scott Harrington, who is, I think, yes. the former Split Era Driver of the Week. But Definitely Johnson, a real driver. Yes. Nicholas Johnson was a Swedish racing driver currently currently driving in the FIA World Endurance Championship. Currently. But uh, drove in the Indy Racing League 1999-2000. Four career starts. His best career IRL finish was in 12th in the 2000 Delphi Indy 200 held at Walt Disney World Speedway. He made one NASCAR Bush Series start at Montreal in August 
2007, finished eighth and led five laps. Or he started eighth, led five laps, and finished 12th for Jay Robinson Racing. But uh, looking at his open-wheel career, we are looking at uh, he was with Blueprint Emke Racing in 1999 and was at uh, Vegas that year, one race, and then went Blueprint Racing in 2000 at uh, Walt Disney World with a 12th, and then Nine House Motorsports with Phoenix with a 21st. And that was it. But uh, did uh, the 24 Hours of Le Mans a couple times, finished second in 2007, third in 2009, third also in 2012, and also did that single Bush Series race in 2007. And not just at any circuit, but at Circuit Gilles Villeneuve in, in Montreal. Yes, very much so. So um, looking at it, they say he's a uh, current – I'm looking, maybe it's just not updated. Uh, yeah, he's current WeatherTech sports car champion. Core Autosport. At least he's in the champion. He's, he's in the championship. He was third in his class at Daytona for LMP3. Yeah, how about that? And finished, uh, did uh, three races last year. Uh, did Daytona was 22nd, but uh, at least through one race this year was third at Daytona with Core Autosport. It's just a shame that he was not able to compete in the Indy 500. Yeah, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, looking through it, three races run over two years. Uh, His last race was the 2000 race at Phoenix, and uh, he was in 2009. This is interesting. He was hired by team owner Ken Anderson as a test driver for the fledgling American Formula One team. What? How about that? The USF One team. Oh, yes, that never got off the ground. Yes. So, you know, he was a test driver for a team that never was. I remember the USF1 effort. That that was a flash in the pan. But, you know, maybe uh, the USF1 team and Andretti Global will be uh, similar in terms of being denied by the FIA. <laughs> At this rate, it seems likely. <laughs> yeah, but uh, this week, uh, you know, Nicholas Johnson again, born August 4th, 1967, in Sweden, current FIA World Endurance Championship driver, this week's random split era driver of the week, Mr. Hatch. All right. Well, for Justin Kinney, I am Caleb Hatch. That wraps up this episode. We'll be back next week to recap the Acura Grand Prix of Long Beach. Thanks for joining us on another edition of New Track Record Podcast. Podcasts by Federated Media.